0: I'm good. Good to hear your voice.
1: Oh, yours has changed a little
0: bit. (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) I'm sure a little bit since second grade. Thank
1: you so much for doing
0: this. Happy to help.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think you will. We appreciate it. So you've already met Shane, my buddy. Yep. Yep, now. This week, everybody, our guest is, I say this every week, but this is a really special guest. And this is a surprise guest. We didn't want to tell you much about this one because this one has a personal story for me, and I owe it to one of you who's listening because about six weeks ago, one of you sent me an article, as you all do, about the Pennsylvania grand jury report, and I read them all. And in this article, a attorney who specializes in abuse cases was interviewed. He is not a Pennsylvania attorney, but because he is an expert in this field, he was asked to comment. And as I'm reading the article, I recognize the name, the attorney. So I put my Gemma Sherlock Holmes hat on. I really have one of those. And I Googled the name, and it was the person I thought it was. Of course, I looked at images, and I looked at video. And it was indeed the name that I recognized. So I think I sent a Facebook message to this attorney. And this is what I said. I said, hi, Michael. I was your second grade teacher. I know you're all saying, oh, my God. Wait until you hear the response that I got back from this young man who was our guest this evening. And this is what he wrote to me. Dear Gemma. I cannot thank you enough for your note today, though for reasons that would not have been known to you, I remember you today as my second grade teacher. Until today, from my time at Magnolia Elementary, I remember clearly only my first, third, fourth, and fifth grade teachers, Mr. Ayers, Mrs. Bowen, Mrs. Denger, and Mr. Black. I even remember the principal, Mr. Potter, as clearly as ever. There is a reason for this gap in my memory. As I have disclosed in public many times now, I suffered grievous, violent sexual abuse at the hands of a neighbor in the summer after first grade and extending into second grade, as did a friend of mine in my presence. I made no disclosure at the time, and neither did my friend. I kept it all secret as the abuser demanded from his end of his gun for 20 years. Without help from responsible adults, my psyche protected me by repressing the memories of those horrific events and even that whole year of my life through what became decades of terrible inexplicable dysfunction, and fear. The release of those memories in years of therapy since my first disclosure of my truth has been slow, traumatic, and frightening, and nearly killed me a few times, but was also relieving when each memory passed. And I have felt cheated out of the positive memories of that time that were locked away with the horrors. So, when I saw your name today, it was only vaguely familiar at first. But then I looked you up, as the information age now allows us to do so readily, and I saw your picture. I recognized you immediately, and I wept with relief. The joy of your presence at that horrible time of my life, your smile, your pure energy and enthusiasm showed in the classroom were released and all rushed through me. I am so glad you were there at that time of my life to provide some happiness to me as a deeply wounded, frightened child. It has bothered me so much all these years that you have otherwise been only a shadow in my memory. That pain was relieved today. So I thank you for reaching out and providing this to me today, this has been a profoundly healing afternoon for me. I appreciate, too, the word encouragement for the work that I do as a survivor advocate to heal others and spare tomorrow's children my walk. I applaud your work for your beloved teacher and mentor. I am so sorry for your loss. I hope that your journey leads you to all the peace that you deserve and honor to the memory of that Sister Catherine deserves. So with that, everybody, I want to introduce you to my former second-grade student, Michael doce
0: Thanks, Jenna. Good afternoon. I'm presently a lawyer with a national law firm based in Washington, D.C. The firm is based in Washington, D.C. My office is in South Southeast Florida. It is the name of the firm is Cohen, Melzani, Tellers, Soul. We have offices throughout the United States, and I have the privilege of heading up the sexual abuse practice group, which means I oversee a team of lawyers and paralegals and other professionals who are involved in specifically combating child sexual abuse. We represent survivors of sexual abuse, civil litigation, as well as in the criminal justice process, starting from the time of a criminal investigation if we're contacted, then all the way through what is be a condition in the criminal justice process. We also advocate in the public arena on behalf of survivors by providing for training sessions for everyone, social workers who are involved in responding to sexual assault victims, to law enforcement, prosecutors, and pretty much anyone who's involved. So we provide our expertise that way, and then uh, provide what training we we have available to us for that purpose. so that's essentially what I do today as a as an attorney.
2: Did you get into that field because of your own experience?
0: it was an interesting evolution if you will i when I started practicing law in nineteen ninety five I was not disclosing to anybody what I had experienced as a child, and so i I did represent some people who had been Uh, sexually harassed and then ultimately found my way out of private practice and into the Florida legislature where I worked on staff for four years and I worked specifically on children's rights legislation there from 1998 to 2002 before returning to private practice. And even at that point in time, I still had not made any disclosures of my own past, but was still obviously focused on helping those who had similar history to my own. And then two years after leaving the employment of the Florida legislature, I actually returned as a citizen, a private citizen at the legislature to repeal the statute of limitations for both civil and criminal prosecution of child sexual battery. That was motivated not only by my own experience, but also by a woman who I met whose son had committed suicide after learning that his disclosure of sexual abuse to law enforcement was one that he made too late statute the limitations was barred in his case and so his mother had asked me if we could change those laws and I said at the time that I certainly knew how to do that having worked in the legislature for four years so I went and attempted to do that it took six years of effort based on the tremendous political forces against us and we ultimately built a grassroots army during that period of time of about 200 survivors and supporters to lobby the legislature and reach out to the media in order to build a force to overcome political opposition that we face. And that opposition came predominantly from the Roman Catholic Church hierarchy as well as the insurance industry to support them as well as a couple other special interest groups. During that time, I began to make my first public disclosures of what my history was. And that started in 2004 when I testified before the Florida Senate Criminal Justice Committee for the first time about that as a survivor and what that experience was like for myself and people I had been in treatment. Over time, the media started paying closer attention and reporting uh, on what I was doing and saying and about the struggle to repeal the statute limitations. And then people started calling me out the lawyer and asking if I would represent them in connection with their claim. So that really was the genesis of what is today a full-time practice in the area of representing sexual assault victims.
2: One of the things that amazes me is a lot of the survivors that we've spoken to in relation to Sister Kathy's Kate, and basically all of the survivors we've spoken to, it seems like you all have done amazing things and you use that experience to you know, create a force to be reckoned with. Do you think for yourself that because now you're able to help people who were in situations like you were in, is that feeling for you at all? I think it's absolutely healing and I think it's
0: absolutely life sustaining. To be perfectly blunt, I think I probably would be dead if I wasn't, I had set down this path of really not just becoming a public advocate, but the most important part of that process for me as a survivor was really just giving away to the universe, you will, the undeserved shame and fear that I carried with that. I really think that those two things would have consumed me at some point and led to my literal self destruction.
1: And Michael, in listening to you, first of all, you must have had amazing elementary school teachers.
0: <laughs> Absolutely.
1: Yeah. The second thing I want to ask you is, can you share with us about how much of your practice is in dealing with survivors of clergy abuse?
0: It's actually a very small percentage at the point in time. Over the years I've represented several survivors of clergy sexual abuse. As we sit here today, I think it's about 15% of my current caseload, but that could change tomorrow. But I represent survivors of institutional abuse in other institutions as well, such as schools and daycare centers and recreation leagues, things of that nature, as well as representing individuals against just individual perpetrators. But I would say over time, I've represented a couple of dozen survivors of clergy abuse.
1: And is the trend that more of them are being convicted and incarcerated? Or because everything we put everything in Maryland except for one case that we have found resulted in a financial settlement and priests being relieved of there they can't perform the sacraments anymore but they're living in really nice retirement communities on the church of crime wow. that are basically yeah. unregistered sex offenders. A detective came and knocked on the door. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack.
2: You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me again in my whole life.
1: You can listen now to season two of Proof wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee?
3: Listen now, go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Right. Yeah, I can't tell you that I don't know the numbers on conviction, but I can't tell you that I'm seeing a groundswell of additional prosecutions or anything of that sort. I think we have a long way to go there. And I think the special limitation plays an important role in that in large measure because the statute limitations, and depending on your jurisdiction, like Maryland does not have a criminal statute limitation, but it does have a very severe civil one that really works against the interests of survivors. And they serve a different statuses in that respect. Um, Pennsylvania, just to your immediate north, is struggling right now to try to repeal statute limitation there that harm the interests of survivors. So I think that what we have is a greater public awareness. I think that there's more public accountability than ever before. I do think that over time, there will be a better appreciation that civil litigation can yield evidence that can then be used in the criminal arena, which is something that my team has done on a couple of occasions in the last few years. And I think as well that the most important component is the duty to report either known or suspected child abuse. That is something that Legal reform has been necessary, and frankly, law enforcement's reaction has to be improved, in my opinion. as the earlier we report on our suspected abuse, the sooner we get to the perpetrator and neutralize them from continuing to harm children. The worst thing to have to do is prosecute somebody after the fact. The best thing to do is to stop them before they offend again. Mm. And I will you that in the majority of cases that I've handled involving institutional abuse, there has been a very pronounced delay. In reporting known or suspected abuse that has resulted in additional victims, we're working on a case right now where there was. It, I would say, at a minimum, the evidence that I've that my investigation has revealed shows at least a two-year delay in in reporting very huge red flags of predatory behavior, even specific warnings that a, that the teacher involved in that case was believed by several parents to be a predator, and rather than respond to that. It was ignored and rejected by the administration. The end result is probably a couple of dozen children for sexually abused that
1: could mm. that
0: never never needed so I think that's really where we have to where we have to go
1: Michael, do you know approximately how many states done away with the statute of limitations completely? Are there any it's,
0: it's a very small number. I think the last time I checked it's three or four. Most states have chosen kind of an odd mix of and what I would call a patchwork of laws that allow for, they might extend the special limitation to the victim as thirty or thirty-five or fifty, something like that. And then there's oftentimes a difference between the civil and the criminal for reasons that continue to escape me. But we do see just really a patchwork across the country. But very, very last time I checked only three sure or four states almost Florida did in 2010, which was just completely repeal, both the civil and criminal completely, which I think is reformed It's long overdue.
2: You are speaking to another survivor. Do you find that they find comfort in knowing that you've experienced the same type of thing that they've experienced? The I would
0: say as a general proposition, yes, people have actually expressed that to me, and I would encourage all survivors to reach out to others for that reason. I think that, and certainly for me, my greatest healing, I think, has come from connecting with other survivors and not feeling so alone in 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 my process and not feeling so alone with my truth. Yeah, I think that I think connection to our community as survivors is really critical for healing.
1: And Michael, do you travel much of the country, not as an attorney, but as a survivor and survivor advocate?
0: Usually I'm wearing both hats at the same time. I do speak across the country at various locations about the work that I do and about combating child sexual abuse in general. And my cases take me outside of the state of Florida. I've handled a number of cases outside Florida. And at this time, too, and certainly all over the state of Florida. Florida's a pretty big state. I've come to know it very well. Yeah. I have a lot of miles in my car. We've got a very, it can take a full day to drive from one of the state to the other. But I would say to you, I'm pretty familiar with where all the Starbucks are located across the city. and I have a particular affinity for Waffle House, so I pretty much know where all of those are. But yeah, travel has been a significant part of the work that I've done to, to reach to other communities other than the one where I live.
1: And yeah. what states are you licensed
0: to practice? I'm licensed in Florida exclusively. When we go to other jurisdictions, I find a local lawyer to sponsor me under what we call a pro hac vice admission, so that I don't have to become barred in every single state where I go. So the courts will generally permit you to do that based on a specialty. So if you bring a if you have a specialized case or you have a special area of practice that is unique, you can petition the court just based on the uh, based on your valid bar in Florida, I can petition another state and ask that I can have what you might refer to as visitation privileges where I can go and handle a specific case just with a local sponsor. That's how we typically handle it over state lines. Because my firm operates in multiple states, sometimes I can just use a sponsor within the firm, but if it's a jurisdiction where we don't have an office, I just, I'll find somebody locally to, to sponsor me. And in many instances, it's a local lawyer who will contact me in the first place. And they I got the case then is within your specialty. Can you come and work this case with me?
2: And so they will become the sponsor.
1: Fascinating. I had no idea that was possible. Did you know that train? Mm
2: -hmm. No, I didn't. But it's really cool because it allows you to go to those different states. Of course, we know that in Pennsylvania, there was the grand jury report. You're you're in Florida. So can you kind of tell us how the the PA report impacted you?
0: It was a very significant report in terms of the scope. In terms of the level of detail, in terms of the commitment that law enforcement shows in making sure it was put together so comprehensive. You know, we actually have, my firm actually has an office in Philadelphia. So the folks in Philadelphia have kept track of that and assisted me in trying to advocate in Pennsylvania for legal reform there. I think that anybody looking at that case who works in this area, who is a survivor, had to be encouraged by the outcome of that report in the first and It explained very well why statute of limitations reform is so important because it identified so many perpetrators who essentially had benefited from silence and from being moved around and other such tactics to avoid law enforcement detection. How they benefited from the ticking of the clock and how that impacts survivors. It equally laid out why survivors in so many instances just don't speak up early, that they need time. So I think from that standpoint, the report was very compelling. At the same time, it really emphasized what I've been beating the drum about for several years, which is that we really need to strengthen the laws on the duty to report on our suspected abuse, and we need to enforce the criminal laws around failure to report. I can't tell you the number of cases I've been involved in where someone's failure to report. Not only led to additional victims, but also entirely harmed the original, the first or second victim because they were delayed in getting help. And the longer you delay getting that help, the harder it is to recover in many instances. But it's been a very particular frustration on my part as a lawyer and as a survivor to see the people responsible for those delays walking away with no legal sanction despite law that you have a duty to here in florida it's a third degree felony punishable by up to five years in prison but i'd be hard to identify a single person who has actually been arrested for breaching that law let alone convicted although i have been the law enforcement on behalf of several clients ask them please make an arrest please charge this person because they were culpable and it's eventually a tacit cover-up I have yet to succeed in getting somebody arrested for that, despite those efforts, despite very compelling evidence. In fact, in one case I was involved in, the person who failed to report was actually promoted to a higher position in, in the institution. So I just, I can't tell you how important it was for me to see that report on on that, because I personally believe that is one of the keys to reducing the rate of child sexual abuse. start with the concept that, according to federal law enforcement, the average child sex predator will victimize over 100 children in their lifetime if they're not stopped. Given that, the sooner you stop them, the fewer victims you have. And certainly, if you fail to stop them as early as possible, there will be more victims in those cases. So if you want to reduce the rate of abuse, if you want to reduce the number of victims, then you really have to enforce the law and get the message across. But if you show the report, you're going to be held disresponsible as the person doing the abuse. Until we do that, we're going to continue to have epidemic levels of child sexual abuse, in my opinion. I think that at the Pennsylvania report was critical. And I think the last thing I would say about the report that really stands out, it it reported numbers that shocked people. It reported numbers of victims, the number of estimated victims, goes to 1,000. When we apply known under-reporting rate, that's actually, the number is actually probably closer to 10,000. That's a stunning amount for one state. But it's a number that doesn't surprise me because I'm used to that. I look at the struggle all the time and I'm familiar with the rates of abuse. And But I think the general public needed to know just how bad it was and to feel that shock and face the truth of the situation. Because the easiest thing for us to do as a society is to look away because it's so horrible.
1: Michael, right now in Maryland, as I'm sure you the attorney general, the office is conducting an investigation, and a lot of people get very impatient, and they say, where are the subpoenas? Lens are going to be a grand jury. Could you explain in like plain language to people who are not clear on that process, how what happens, who starts the investigation, how that plays out, and then...
0: Who determines whether the grand jury is conveyed? Yeah, and part of that depends on the jurisdiction as to who's empowered to do that. It could be the attorney general in certain instances. It could be what we either call a district attorney or a state attorney in others. So when you see an attorney general investigation like this, it's the the first thing to understand is it's gonna be the chief law enforcement officer somewhere is going to be the one in charge of that. And you Could certainly have situations where the attorney general could do it at the same time a district attorney or what we call here in Florida state attorney could do the same thing. And the next step to appreciate is that when these grand jury investigations begin by necessity, their investigative process is highly secretive the the fact that subpoenas are being issued is sometimes made public but not always certainly the return information on the subpoenas that goes to the grand jury members is not made public at the beginning and we do that for a number of public policy reasons but first and foremost just to encourage the disclosure of truth we don't want the work of the grand jury or the witnesses who appear in front of grand juries to be influenced by public exposure of what's going on we want them simply to focus on the truth So that once all that information is assembled and a grand jury can consider it with the assistance of the top law enforcement, then at that point in time you end up with reports or you end up with indictments coming from the grand jury, depending on the circumstances or both. And the important part of a grand jury process like the one we saw in Pennsylvania and I think like the one that's underway in Maryland as well as DC and I think Virginia, a couple of other jurisdictions, um the important part is the grand juries are empowered to not just evaluate and bring indictments against criminal behavior, but also to make recommendations to legislative bodies for legal reform that might be necessary if you see a deficiency. Or if it's not a legislative reform, some no other sort of administrative change that, you know, in some any deficiency in how law enforcement or government is reacting that could make a situation worse and a graduate has the ability to identify that, say this is what we've investigated. We have found not only breaches of law, but we've found situations where the law or the administration of law has facilitated the crimes. Therefore, you need to fix that. So It can be very powerful. But in order to achieve that, we do most of it in secret until such time as the work is complete. And then the chief law enforcement officer for that jurisdiction can say, okay, now it's time for everybody to understand what these findings are. And so then the report is released. And that's that's the process we recently saw in Pennsylvania.
1: All right. What's happening right now is that the criminal investigator and the assistant state's attorney are doing interviews and investigating, um, contacting folks who have contacted them. That could take a couple of years,
0: right? Before a grand jury is convened. Certainly you, you will be grand jury to consider evidence for a year or more, depending on the scope of what they're doing. Sometimes it lasts. It just depends on the scope. And sometimes we start with a certain scope and this expands over time. It just depends what they find. And the process would try to involve front with the, you know, any of your attorney generals or assistant attorney generals or, or district attorneys or assistant DAs. They will. Interview witnesses, of course, first gather documents and use their subpoena power. They will obtain that information and then present that information. The, the valuable portion of that information will go to the grand jury, including witnesses who will go and testify. So there's a filtering effect and a refinement of a process that the law enforcement officials go through. And then they present what they do as most pertinent to the grand jury so the grand jury can make the findings that they need to make.
1: Who determines who's on the grand jury and how many numbers are there? The
0: number of members varies as well from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, whether it's state or federal or and what state you may be in. That is usually set by law, depending on the, the law of the jurisdiction. The composition is much like any other jury. Here in Florida, for example, the jury rolls are compiled from driver's license, right? Driver's licenses. So, if you have a driver's license, the state of Florida, you're subject to being called in for jury service, whether it's on a regular trial or on a grand jury. You just get a slightly totally different something, <laughs> depending on which one you're drawn. You're called for. So, it is—it's random from some body registration. We used to do it by voter registration. I think the trend is to work move away from that and we're more towards something like driver's license registration, so we have a um, a jury pool that is more reflective of the community at large. Because uh, not everybody registers.
1: So I guess the chances are pretty slim that Abby Tov and Jemma Hoskins are not going to be invited to be on that grand jury.
0: He, you would have to <laughs> you would have the same likelihood of being called as anyone else. Um,
2: okay. <laughs> yeah, it's all random,
0: and it's amazing sometimes how you can go. I've, I'm 49 years old. I've only been called for jury duty once. But I know other people my age who have been called for a grand. They have been called for jury duty five, six, seven times, and they don't understand why they get called more often than I do. And neither do I. It's just luck of the draw.
1: I guess I was thinking because of our notoriety and our very strong feelings about the whole issue. It's,
0: what they'll do is she call for jury service. That you're not filtered at that point. Once you show up, you may be filtered out based on bias, but maybe not. It just it depends on the people involved. When I try case, I'm sometimes surprised who the opposing party leaves in my jury box. Mm-hmm. There are people who have a certain profile that I think would usually cause them to want to strike them from the jury. And maybe there's a two or two out there that's the same thing about me. <laughs> uh, but that's when the filtering occurred after you show up. So
1: do they like having experts on those kind of juries or would they prefer not? They would have like a regular citizen who does not have a job that would impact
0: Generally, what we find is that uh, unless we're dealing with a very narrow area of subject matter, rocket engineering, for example, if the case involving a rocket or some kind of engineering that went wrong and resulted in some product defect or something, you usually find too many engineering sources just by law of numbers, too many that show up in the jury box, so you'll end up with a bunch of jurors in a case like that where mm-hmm. nobody really knows a whole lot about engineering, so they're not thinking a lot at the table. With that said, when we're dealing with human affairs like that, it's actually very hard to exclude everybody who knows something about it. Certainly, if I show up in a jury box for jury selection and the case is about child sexual abuse, somebody is going to strike me from that jury because I know so much about it. I'm going to arrive with certain predispositions. But with that said, you know, I've tried cases, child abuse cases, in front of jurors that include law enforcement officers, teachers. I had a case where somebody was a sex trauma survivor who stayed on the jury. So it's not an automatic strike if you know something about the subject matter. Typically, as a lawyer, I would say to you, I want somebody on the jury to know a little something about it from some point of review, because after that, it's all brand new. But I certainly think in the area of child sexual assault, there's so much coverage that we're not getting and so much education we're not getting through just even just the popular press that I'm finding our jurors are better educated than they were five or 10 years ago. Certainly encouraged by that.
2: What should survivors do in terms of uh, with this PA report coming out? What should they do with this movement?
0: I think it depends on where they are in their recovery process, first of all. I think that if somebody has reached the point of empowerment that they want to participate in the public discourse, there's a number of ways to do that. But I would certainly encourage anyone who feels that they want to do something, that this is something they should definitely engage in some form of activism because it can be very empowering to get your voice out there. And so I would say first and foremost, if somebody is at that point, first thing I would do is get together with other survivors and say, what can we do as a group? Not just one individual, but what can we do as a group? And the reason I say that is that have a grand jury report and it's making recommendations, the next step is that someone in the legislature needs to make some changes. When I worked in the legislature, we followed Pretty much the old adage that has existed in politics for many years, that if you have one person to call their visits, you're off the ton of an issue, you have a kook. If you have two, it's a kook and their friend. If you have three, you have a movement. So it always makes sense to band together. Certainly, I think that made the difference here in Florida when we worked to reveal the session limitations. We have about 200 people involved in raising our voices. So I would certainly say, first and foremost, get with other survivors if you can and figure out who you're going to talk to and how you're going to do that as a group. It's important to speak both to the media as well as to individual members of the legislature. In that respect, it oftentimes surprises people to to find out. that It's actually fairly easy to get to your elected officials. There's a couple of ways to do it. Believe it or not, if you call the office of your elected official, most of the time, they will make an appointment for you to see your state rep or assembly person or your state senator or whoever that is. They'll make you an appointment. It might take 60 days or so. But they'll do that. The other thing you can do is you can contact those same offices and ask when that elected official is speaking in public next. And then go there. Okay. And listen to whatever they have to say at the while they're at a particular event. And then approach them. Stand in line. Do what you have to do to get in front of them and say, hey, listen, while you're here, I'm one of your constituents and I'd like to talk to you about something that's very important to me. Can I tell you about my views on this? I would always do that. And that face-to-face is probably the best way to get your message across. I discourage just sending emails. Um, I think emails are important. I think it's an important component. But if, you, if that's all you do, then the legislator, the elected official, can't put a real face, a real story with the message. If there's the black and white on the page, and then there's the face-to-face. It is definitely harder to turn somebody away who has looked you in the eye. That kind of human contact is second to none. And I can say to to anyone that when I started the six-year process to repeal the statute of limitations in Florida, it was my voice at the beginning. And it took time to build the voices to more. But along the way, there was a very important statement made during a committee hearing by one of the elected officials in the House Florida House of Representatives. He asked me, while I was standing, let him answer a question. He said to me, he says, why should we... Do this now? What is the urgency? Because frankly, you are the only person I've heard from who says this is important to them, and we have a lot to do here. Why should this be a priority? Now, at first, I bristled at the question. But then when I thought about it in the context of having worse there, I remembered the old adage one person to cook, two with their friend, and three in the movement. And it really eliminated that I really, at that point in time, had failed to really bring enough voices and stories to the table. And this state house member, I remember him clear as a bell, he was trying to make a point, I think, to me, which is, if you want it to work, you need to bring more people here. You need to get people to speak up. Now, I did say to him. Listen, I'm speaking for a lot of people who don't have the courage to come to this podium or they want to maintain their privacy, which is the right. But I am telling you stories about other people that I've met and experienced with through their recovery process with them. And not everyone can do this. Not everyone can come here have a microphone with a bunch of strangers press in the room and speak of this verse of truth which I think he, he understood that but nonetheless I think if somebody has reached a point where they're ready to tell their story it's very important to do that in person and these are the ways that you can do it so i certainly say that's what you should do in addition to any kind of online petitions, in addition to emails and that sort of thing which have their place, but there really is no substitute for getting that message across because then what happens is when a Visa legislation gets into debate, you will then see the end result of your effort. You will see that state representative, you will see that state senator, that assembly person stand up and say, I met someone. And this is the story they're told. This is what they told me. And it brought tears to my eyes. And it made it so real for me. And this is why this is so important. And I made them a promise that I would make sure that this change happens in the law. That's what your goal is to get to that point, to make it as real as possible for that elected official.
1: Right now, there are people listening. That have been abused and are terrified to take the first step. There's some advice you can give them. They may not even have told, they may not have told anybody, and they may be right. adults well into their years.
0: Yeah, no question about it. And that's a great question, Jenna. I appreciate it. It took me a long time to speak up and tell my truth. For 20 years I stayed silent, didn't tell a living soul. And I understand why that happened. And I would say to any survivor out there who has to speak up, who has kept the secret as long as they have or told very few people, I would say a couple of things to them. First of all, I would reaffirm to them that what happened to you is not your fault, that you do not deserve to be ashamed. And that now, as an adult, you have the power to keep yourself safe, that you do not need to continue to live a restrained life for fear of what will happen because you are now empowered. And what we tend to do as survivors is relate to the world as we did as a child. It's an important part of the and re-empowerment process to embrace the fact that we now as an adult have a choice. And so the first thing that I would do in addition to affirming those things is encourage a survivor to take a look at the people around them. We all generally have three circles of people around us. The first circle are people who are close to us. These are our immediate family members. These are our spouses, our boyfriends, our girlfriends, are significant others. These are the people closest to us, our best friend. And the next layer out, the next circle out are people who are more acquaintances, but we maybe don't share a whole lot with them. They might be, we might still consider them friends, but we don't confide in them. We don't really, really lean on them for emotional support, but they're a little closer than an acquaintance who would be in the third circle out. Third circle out are people that you know, that you maybe work with, that it may be a neighbor that you see, but these are people who you just don't know that that well that you certainly wouldn't even consider confiding anything in them, but of any private nature, but there's still people in your life. I think if you look at those circles and then ask yourself this question, have I decided who belongs in which circle? As a survivor, I think it's very important to recognize that we lose control as children when we're abused, and we tend to not deliberately choose thereafter who's in our world, who's in our circles, and where they are. In my recovery process, it was very important to move the people around to so get to a point where I said, okay, the people closest to me are actually people who are not supportive, of me, who are not empathetic, who are not the people I would really want to turn to. They just helped with them. So it was important that I distanced those people. And then when I looked at the circles, I looked at the farthest circle out, and I realized that there was somebody there who I actually could trust, who I thought, you know what, I bet if I can side in, you know, in her that she's going to probably react in a supportive way. So I tried it. She's now at in my inner circle as my greatest Daily support. When you look at that, start making these deliberate choices, you build a stronger support for yourself and that helps you build the courage to come outside of the constraints that you feel as a, as someone who... But I think that's an important part as well because we cannot just empower ourselves alone. We need to support ourselves and most importantly, we deserve to have support from others, but others that we trust. And we have choices to make. If somebody is in our inner circle, because they're there by virtue of blood ties, marriage ties, any other ties, we can still choose whether or not these are people that we're going to keep around. So let me give an example of that. I have represented a young woman who had been sexually <laughs> abused by an uncle, and every year at Thanksgiving time, the entire family would descend on one home for Thanksgiving, and the uncle was always there. And she started to complain in her twenties that the uncle was always there, and everybody kept saying, "What he did to you was years ago. Get yeah. over it." Now, we'll put him at the other end of the table from you. Things like that. She, I don't even want him in the room. And I'm worried about the younger members of the family who are here. And so she struggled for the years, very literally at Thanksgiving, but also throughout the balance of the year, because everybody was saying, you need to get over this. So a long time ago, move on with your life. He's moved on Look like, how old he is. He's not. And she kept saying, no, he had still a danger. And I feel very uncomfortable around him. You need to ban him. Look what he did to me. Did he admit it in point of fact. Ultimately, she had to make a decision to cut ties with every single member of her family except for two. The only two voices in that family that said, you're right, we shouldn't be here. So the next Thanksgiving that rolled around, she didn't go to the big family get-together. Instead, she said, I'm going to find dear friends, people who support me, who trust me, who honor my truth, and I'm going to have Thanksgiving with them instead. Those people have become her family. We have to make those sort of choices sometimes, even when the end result is that we lose, family ties. Because what's most important is that we honor our truth, that we are true to ourselves, that our comfort, that our safety is most important. So I think that's another component to allowing yourself to get to a point where you can really start to shed the undeserved shame and the fear and everything that distress that comes with that. So I, I would encourage survivors to do that. And again, particularly to answer the question, those who are still struggling to honor their truth by being able to share it with others that can support them, it's important to really look at your life and ask yourself, okay, what does my life look like? What do the people look like? And am I finding a way to give myself the support of people who I deserve to support me? And if you can't find that in your three circles, then it's time to reach out to another survivor group because you will certainly find empathy there. You will find support there. Others who have been through this process, people do, reach out for that. And kind of the last thing I would say to the people in that position, other survivors in that position, that try to draw some strength from the fact that others have been through this process and can tell you with true honesty that when you speak your truth, it will be well-received somewhere. There will be people who will honor it and cherish it. And I was to share one very brief story in that respect. The first time that I testified in public the Florida Senate, criminal justice committee about my truth, I was absolutely petrified. I was. I had to grab both sides of the podium in order to keep my hands from shaking and be able to say what I needed to say. But I'm certain everybody in the room could see just how scared I was, just speaking this truth and not knowing what reaction I get, was going to get. When I left the room, about 15 minutes later, I'm walking down the hall and I see a lobbyist who I had known for many years who certainly didn't know my truth before that day, but he had been in the room and I saw him across the room. I didn't know him well. I just knew him as a lobbyist. We had some professional interaction. But he looked at me and he simply said three words. He said, that took guts. And it was probably the most affirming statement that I've ever received in my entire life. Because it was an, a very simple acknowledgement of what it took, the courage it took, just to stand up there and speak that truth.
1: Michael, I'm going to let look- same clothes that, into my student, I have to get something in. I, you are a gift. I don't know if you're aware of that, but you are a gift to me and to everybody who's listening to you. And I'm just so proud that I was a little piece of your life. And to come back together again means so much to me. And I personally want to offer that if there is anything I can do for you or your cause or your firm, you need only ask. People know me. People know you. So I just want to put that out there. But I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for what you're doing and for being the person you are. And I'm praying you love and positive energy, okay?
2: Thank you, Gemma. That means a tremendous amount. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. Michael, do you remember anything about Gemma as your teacher by chance?
0: I do now. As I explained in my note to her, it was she was really what I call the shadow, and that's really what I had—a shadow of a memory of Gemma. And I just, I honestly just could not, try as I might, I simply could not remember her, and it frustrated me. And I knew there was a clear connection to the abuse I was suffering at the same time that she was my teacher, because I remembered everything before and I remembered everything after, clear as a bell. I remember Mr. Ayers, I remember Mr. Bowen on the other end. It did bother me, but when she reached out, truly the it. I was at a point now in my recovery where I can embrace the memories and accept them as they come in and just being able to then reach out on the internet and see her picture. And when I saw her face, I was, in that moment, I know this, I know her, this is my teacher. And that was just an incredibly powerful moment because not only did I say i recognized this person and I remember this person now as my teacher, but I could then remember everything that she was in that classroom. I remember the, the joy and the energy and the passion that she has for teaching and, and how that impacted me. And I provided some comfort in a very dark time and a very horrific time of my life to be able to walk into that classroom and spend the day with a teacher who really was very positive in her energy and very engaged with us as students. I, I know it definitely helped me through that horrible time in my life. And I'm just incredibly grateful that she was who she was as a teacher and just as a human being. I can remember all of that now for sure.
1: Wow. I'm just sorry that I didn't know. I would have been able to help. I'm so sorry for that. And I hope other yeah. teachers are realizing that you have kids in your class that need you and you might not know why. It's just be vigilant and just care. Yeah.
0: yeah, no question. Yeah, to keep that positive energy going, Gemma, and that in one way or other. Will, will help those children. And certainly, I, I know that teachers experience this all the time. they show up with in our classrooms with other things going on in that world, some good, some bad. And it is just critically important. It's a tremendous value to any child to have a teacher who is there positively engaged. And really, above all, children will hide the fact from you that they're being hurt. But to just be that positive right can be the difference between whether or not that. Child makes it through or just not, it's just a very important role that teachers play in the lives of children.